Welcome to the latest Circal HR Futures podcast, uh, brought to you in association with Kaplan Performance Academy, helping you deliver your organisational development needs. Uh, my name's Kevin Green. Uh, I'm the chair of Circal's HR Advisory Board, and I'm also the host for this podcast. With me today is Leslie Cotton, the Divisional People Director at P&O Ferries. Hello, Leslie. Hi, Kevin. Nice to be with you today. Yeah, it's going to be fun, I think. Um, why don't you tell um, our listeners a little bit about the organisation, how many people it employs and what it does? I think, you know, it says what it does on the tin, really. I mean, it's a ferry company, but you might want to say a little bit more about the organisation. OK, Kevin, thank you. Yeah, well, we've got, um, I look after ferries and ferry masters as, as the division. Ferries is um, clearly our the ship business with with intermodal include including trains uh, uh, and the ferry masters business is more the logistics sort of truck warehousing lorry side um, so we've got a, an interesting mix of business between logistics and tourist um, you know so our freight business is is really uh, the growth side um, we can come on perhaps a little bit more about the covid world <laughs> but um 70% of sort of the turnover would be on the freight side, but we've got a very strong passenger brand. It's an iconic brand uh, yeah. with obviously Dover Calais being one of those, those key routes. But it's no longer associated with the cruise ships because again, P&O as a brand, historically very synonymous with ferries, but also cruises and stuff. Yeah, no, that's no, that's nothing to do with us. So um, no, a completely different ownership model. And we were acquired um, last year by DP World. So uh, we're part of the Dubai uh, organization. Uh, and we're sort of an important part in their sort of logistical moving container from uh, goods across ports. Uh, and we're in sort of an important area in terms of the assets that they can utilize to really look at the global flow of trade. Uh, and how can they utilize our business to support that to develop with customers new need new new solutions to the needs of customers okay and and so tell me about how many people do you employ you got a good few thousand i know there's been some changes recently but yeah i mean we sadly some some serious changes so uh, when i joined we were around 4000 employees um and we're have just been through um, a very difficult consultation process with our people um, and our trade union colleagues. Not dissimilar to many businesses, I'm sure, at this moment in time, as we can see from the impact of COVID. So round about, we will have lost around about 900 people um, when we finished this um, redundancy process, which has been very tough, very yeah, tough true. indeed for, for the people concerned. Okay, and we'll talk a bit about that a, a, a bit later. Uh, and how long have you been at P&O Ferries? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, longer than I expected, really, one <laughs> could argue, because time flies, doesn't it? But, um, yeah. yeah, it's over just over 10 years now that I've been at P&O Ferries. Um, but, you know, had, had a, a mix of uh, career uh, types of businesses before I landed in, in logistics, trade, tourists, etc., and, and and the world of trade unions. Quite a mix before then. <laughs> Okay, we'll come back to that a bit later as well. So what I always do is I always start off by asking people, because I'm interested in this, is how did you get into HR in the first place? So right to the beginning of your career, you know, there are some people that decide at university, this is the career for me, or they had a parent or a friend or something. So tell us about your journey into HR. How did you, how did you end up getting involved in our profession? 
yeah okay no that, you know it was never the plan to be in HR um, the plan was definitely not to go to university uh, the plan after my levels was definitely to start uh, with a a really good broad management training um, and my passion was selling and commercial um, I'd always worked um, since about the age of 15 with Saturday jobs so I'd worked on various markets would you believe selling MS seconds which is hilarious because that was obviously my first the first company I joined but you know we'd have cut um, customers come to the stall and you know want to want to buy an apron and leave with the whole range of autumn leaves that was the in vogue pattern at the time oh, so they'd yeah. have the table mats and the the toaster cover and the tablecloth and and the whole kit and caboodle um, and then I ended up working on Saturdays in Ravel shoe shops and again you know what why would you buy such a nice pair of shoes without buying shoe trees and your protector and so I, I love selling seeing the sales come in um, the, the money the financial drive um, to make that connection with customers okay. so I applied to another companies for a general management career thinking I'd go into the commercial side I was fortunate enough to go into Marks and Spencer's at the time it was you know was one of the best training development programs um, and you had a general career a general training across the whole of the M&S arena um, and whilst that was happening I I saw that I did have skills around the people side but also that you couldn't actually deliver anything unless you got the people side right so um, I then specialized in, in HR and uh, it's probably staff management back then how awful is yeah. that personnel that was next yeah that mm. was next um, and now we've gone from HR to people so it doesn't really matter what you call it um, you know people drive results and that's where my heart was and that's where I started to specialize okay so how long were you got there a long time weren't you that was the sort of your the core part of your career and then a few yeah. different organizations afterwards which i'll come to in a moment so you was there a, i can't remember i think it was 17 years 17, 17 years. yeah yeah you must have a very I, young girl then. Uh, yes kevin yes <laughs> how complimentary are you i'll pay you later <laughs> yes i was a child when i started so um forget the A-levels yeah I hadn't even got as far as O-levels as they were in those days um, so yes I did 17 years the best thing I did was definitely join Marks and Spencers it was superb and then the best thing I did was leave because it I wanted to go and prove that I could be successful without the sort of M&S machine if you like um, I did some brilliant things during my time with M&S uh, and made amazing friendships as well but actually leaving to go and do something um, and set up an HR department myself was uh, was brilliant. So I could take all that learning with me. Okay, so tell us a bit about what you think now when you look back at your career, the difference in terms of HR, you know, from the big machine of M&S, you then went to Holmes Place, an entrepreneurial gym business. You then went, um, you're in a restaurant business, Paramount, I think, and then into P&O Ferries with Union and so a very yeah. sort of eclectic sort of career so what do you take from that what are the what are the differences so if a young person perhaps early in their HR career was you know looking at this what would you be saying what did you take from each of those organizations yeah I mean and you missed one I actually I actually left to go to a fashion brand a privately owned company called Morgan de Troyes which um, was quite prominent for wasn't well I wasn't the target customer um, I might add far younger than me but was quite an sort of iconic fashion brand many many moons ago and that was privately owned so I mean it's a really good question from corporate I mean you couldn't have was Morgan the one with like the heart 
Oh, Kevin, you know, yes, yes, that's the one. Absolutely the one. Um, and yes, I mean, it was, you couldn't, I don't think I've got a bigger extreme really from the corporate world uh, with the governance and the protocol and the best practice of Marks and Spencers to uh, what was, uh, you know, a privately owned business with a guy that was a real trader, absolutely knew his merchandise. Um, and, um, you know, got to a point with the growth of the business that they needed sort of HR, but like, like many organizations, as long as you're not a blocker, um, which you can be, if you, you know, some people can be, but, you know, enabling him to make money was where I came from. So I think my, my learning from that into what followed that was um, private equity. Um, and that, as you rightly said, Kevin, that mm -hmm. was the Homes Place Health Clubs, um, which we sold to Virgin Active followed by Paramount restaurants where 2008 hit that business quite badly, a um, yeah. number of restaurant brands. Um, and, you know, people are people wherever you go, but the real learning I think for anybody coming through the profession is be a business person first, always be a business director that just so happens to have their expertise grounded in people, um, but talk the language of the business, know how to make money, know what the buttons are to push or the, you know, the levers to pull to really help, um, that you know the board the, the shareholder the ownership model whatever it might be show your value that your knowledge base is steeped in making money you know you, you haven't joined a, a charity um, but always do it with integrity and, and, and in terms of that so what happens if HR aren't commercial they don't really understand the language of the business what have you seen on there might have been I mean an M&S I think no, I suspect that they were they were quite commercial. But I mean, I think, you know, there are times when I've worked with organisations in and HR functions, which, you know, it's all about process and it's all about systems. And, you know, sometimes you think, actually, I'm not sure this is helping the business. It's, you know, it's, in, it's good, well-intentioned, but it doesn't often deliver the value that's really required. So how do you make sure that HR is doing the right stuff by the business? Yeah, no, you, I, I echo your, your, your comments because, uh, you know, the bits that you mentioned uh, become quite treacly and really quite dull. Um, and I think if, if that's where your interest lies, um, you probably need to take a, a, a different path in terms of systems and, and process and governance. I mean, there's no doubt that you have to keep the business safe from a legal perspective, but you have to do that in a quiet way. And uh, for me, it, it's all about demonstrating that, the value you add is about making money. So um, I think, did you say to me, how do you make sure that you do that? Was that your yeah, question? Yeah, I suppose it's a bit about, yeah. So I don't know, you may have gone into a, uh, an organization which is, you know, a bit procedurally driven, like policies on everything. And you've most probably gone, oh, I'm, I'm not sure we're doing the right thing by the business. So you have to unpick it. So I suppose the question is, is how do you i suppose it's really about the blend isn't it because clearly yeah. you do need some policies but at the same time we want to make sure that we're commercial and not getting in the way yeah and all the bits you mentioned i think still have to happen i mean you know mns was very policy driven um and let's face it with the size of the workforce over fifty thousand or whatever it was at the time um if you don't have some order you're going to have chaos apart yeah. from the fact you've got a brand reputation uh, and employment law has to feature but for me, the factory side, which is the bit that you have for me described and the best practice to ensure that you are maintaining brand credentials, 
which you can't forget about, that has to be given. That's like your house, your foundations of your house. Mm. Uh, you can't put the walls on without it, but it has to happen quietly. It's a given. It's professional. Um, you know, and today, obviously, you've got technology and various models that can make that smoother, more efficient, more cost effective. Um, so that's not what you can, I for me, that's not what I hang my hat on. And I don't think it's the prominent sort of USP that you want to be known for. Um, people don't, you know, it's, that's, as I say, that is the, bre the bread and butter. Uh, but actually the partnering with the business and the insight that one can bring to the discussion around the strategic direction is where I think you can set yourself apart. Okay, I think we'll come back to that, Leslie, because I'm keen to explore about what HR needs to do differently and how it adapts and changes and perhaps adds more value. Let's just talk a bit about P&O ferries, because clearly, you know, we've seen in the press, people will have seen, and you mentioned the redundancies you've had to make. So clearly the business has been adversely affected by COVID. I suppose the question I'm interested in is what have we, what's the business taken from that? What have you learned? What will you do differently going forward? I mean, there's going to be less people in the business, clearly, but it's not just about reducing costs. It's trying to, you know, I don't know, be more agile, be more responsive, get closer to cut. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of things, you know, people working remotely has been a challenge, hasn't it? I'm sure. So tell us about a bit about how it's affected the business, but then more, what's the learning? What do you take out of this sort of challenge? Yeah, it's, it wasn't, it's interesting. It wasn't long before, um, that long before this, um, probably a year, but in, in terms of organisational design, not that long to, to bed in a new organisational design. Uh, prior to being um, acquired by DP World, we moved from sort of a directorate, quite a traditional model to typically your business unit centre of excellence model. So the matrix working. So that was still evolving. Uh, and I also launched um, critical capabilities, which was really to drive uh, a broader strategic uh, direction of travel. What was it we needed our, our leadership team to demonstrate in terms of their skills and behaviours? And, and I guess the reason I mentioned that, because what I've now seen through COVID is almost like a fast forward of delivery and success around those things far quicker than in a typical change world. And I say in a typical change world because I don't think businesses ever stand still anymore. Change is the norm. So from a normal change environment to, I don't know, change on speed, if you like, let's face it, the COVID world mm. has just exacerbated um, so many issues and problems. But when I think about our critical capabilities of managing complexity, and leveraging networks and, co and collaboration. When I look at how our leadership team have performed through these challenges, we've all we've fast forwarded the skill level in those areas. I mean, the complexity has been huge, um, and the, the working relationships between the line, the operation, i.e., the business units with the centres of excellence has been phenomenal in order to deliver some very very challenging objectives to ensure this business survives and can be rebuilt in a post-COVID world, which is obviously what we're going to do. So that's been, that's been phenomenal, really, seeing that change in people um, and watching how people have the effort, the energy, um, you know, that, that brand gene of what does P&O mean in a leader and mm -hmm. our people at the front line who have worked so hard. And yeah, you're right, adapted to working from home, uh, you know, adopting new technology. If we try to live this 
20 years ago, we would never have survived in the way that we have. Yeah. So, so lots of learning from it. I suppose let's just touch on the, the union bit, because clearly that must have been tough for the business and tough for your people to lose, I don't know, 20%, 25% of the organisation. So, and I don't think you've done a big programme like that before. So a, a couple of, you know, I don't know, snippets, the highlights, you know, what went well, what have you learned from it? What will you do differently with the unions? I mean, you got through it without any industrial action or any kind of major dispute, which I think is remarkable really so just talk a little bit about some of the the things that you've taken out of working with the unions over this last you know uh, two or three months yeah i mean a, a major sort of learning for me really because i mean my my um my heart is around culture and strategic planning people development and and watching that sort of cultural change to drive a business um with people uh, sort of the skill sets of people delivering those profits it, it wasn't the ir space that was my you know, my, my heartland, if you like, but it had to be. Um, and it comes back to that sort of integrity point and how you deal with stakeholders and walking people's shoes and recognising different agendas and what people are trying to achieve. Um, you know, and clearly the trade unions have an important part to play. They, their role is very much is saving jobs, um, clearly, and ensuring that terms and conditions are not eroded. We spent a lot of time talking about, to each trade union separately, about the business position, the financial health, um, what was what had gone on as, as we lost at that period of time around 95% of our tourist business. I mean, it, it just stopped. Uh, and what that meant to our profitability and really developing that partnership of understanding and really kept coming back to the purpose of this is how many jobs are we saving as opposed to the sadness around how many are we losing? Um, and, you know, we work differently with different trade unions, different, they came from different perspectives as to how they position their argument. Um, and we were able to put some jobs back in to the, um, to the uh, proposal. And I think mm. that's really important. Uh, and, and people who sort of think that, oh, well, consultation is lip service, it, it genuinely isn't if you get the right dialogue between the trade union and the employer. Uh, but I do appreciate it's not always easy. Um, and we've, we've come a long way, uh, but not, you know, it, it's not an easy uh, conversation to have, clearly. No, no. And, and you were very innovative as well. You did create your own sort of job retention scheme and, 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 and you know, used some learning from what the government have done and then, you know, and, and gone back to your workforce to try and yeah. give some people some, you know, to retain some people and hope that they can get through to the other side. Yeah, it was um, further into the consultation period um, that I started to really think about um, the potential of trade returning. We'd spent a lot of time talking to the trade unions about our minimum viable product, uh, when trade may or may not return, the fact that we couldn't predict that. Uh, but I really thought about, well, you know, we will come through COVID. We will have a, a trading environment, a different model, no doubt, but we will have trade will return. We're an island. Um, and thought about how we therefore might save jobs in a different way and how we could build on the amazing um, job retention scheme that the government had put in place. So you're right, we put um, sort of looked at the, the, the maths, looked at the financial model as to how that might work, uh, and sat down and spoke to the trade unions about a scheme, you know, having listened to them about what are you going to do when trade returns, rather than just make, you know, a, sort of a, a hundred, hundred, let's say circa 100 people also redundant, could we offer 
to those that went through the compulsory process, the top 100 scores, i.e. really good people that we actually didn't, you know, we don't want to lose. The opportunity is a, a voluntary, uh, but to go and sit on our job, be part of our job retention scheme. So basically it's a 60% um, payment uh, from the company to the individual. They can top up their pay uh, through doing other things if they want to. Uh, and the idea and the ambition, the drive is that we will bring them back next year when we uh, return to another vessel onto our, particularly on our Dover-Calais route. And when we see some increase in trade uh, across some of our other routes, we will bring people out of the job retention scheme back onto their previous contracts um, rather than, than make them redundant. So that seems to have been quite a, a popular opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see people are now being invited to see if they want to be part of that scheme. So I was really pleased that we could save some more jobs through that uh, and build on something the government have put in place. Yeah, it's a good, it was a good idea. And I think, it, you know, it, the business is to be commended. You know, I mean, it's it, it's always difficult thing to do. And if you can save jobs and create an opportunity for people to return, it's something that, you know, I think you've done well to, to pursue and, and put in place. Let's go back then, Leslie, a little bit to your career. And we're giving you a bit of a broader canvas now to, to talk about just sort of highlight things that in your career that you're, you're sort of proudest of and just, I don't know, you might want to pick one or two, you know, things that were, went well, you know, you saw them, had an impact, made a difference, maybe at P&O, maybe at M&S, maybe at Holmes Place, wherever it is. Because again, I'm always interested in just learning from what other people have done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this, it's an interesting question because you, you could speak sort of spend a long time because this, the, the learnings were quite different um you know I, i'm quite proud i guess of the ability to adapt and and uh, within very very different business models and different sectors so i think that ability as an hr professional yeah. to be able to as i say pick pick those um business priorities up and understand strategically where you can make a difference and how you how you can contribute um uh, and seeing the business grow, you know, albeit in private equity, there's always an exit strategy. Well, not always, but normally, mm -hmm. um, you know, taking the business to and increasing that EBITDA so that enterprise value is such that that shareholder is getting the right enterprise value and multiple, etc., to to do the deal. You know, it's back to that when I was on the market doing the deal. Mm -hmm. um, that that sort of strongly strongly motivated me. Um, so and and there's. There's no doubt, and this is the, soft, the, the softer side, but really, really important is the friendships and the, the people that you meet and the stories and what you learn about people. Um, and, you know, never assume you really know the full person, you know, the onion layer thing. And, and you know, my, some of my closest girlfriends are all through, you know, there's a number of closest girlfriends all through MS. So you meet some great people along the way. But you also learn a lot, I think, around, you know, people's humility, people's drive, the human spirit to actually overcome issues in people's lives. I mean, it's quite humbling, really. So the continuability to learn as you go, I think, is okay. pretty well, critical. I think, I, think, well, I think it's, you know, I think, you know, people that have had senior roles in lots of organisations, I think adaptability is important. But learning is hugely important, you know, learning about organizations and businesses and picking things up it's clearly one of the things that differentiates people that have uh big careers and those that don't i yeah. think is the ability to learn and yeah. develop now and you never let's stop go the learning. other way no you don't now i'm gonna go the other way now so let's go oh go on what's next 
So tell me about things that have gone wrong. So where you've got learning from mistakes, you know, where you go, you look at hindsight. I mean, I, in my career, I go back and look at a few things and go, why did we ever think that would work? You know, absolute disasters. But out of them, you know, often, uh, you know, um, came great ideas and great learning and ways in which we're going to adapt and do it differently next time. So there must have been one or two, I'm sure. So just share as a couple or perhaps one that you're happy to do. You didn't have this on the list of questions, did you? <laughs> I think I did. There must be. No, one. no you didn't. Um, I'm going to have to really think now. That sounds dreadful, doesn't it? So something that didn't go quite as planned. Yeah, what would you do differently? What did you learn from? You know, something in your career go, oh, I don't sure we should have tried that or that bit worked, but that bit didn't or it could have been a tea. I'll tell you what, I did one the other day and someone said, I joined an organisation, I did great due diligence and well, on the first morning, I knew it wasn't for me. And I went, how did you know on the first morning? She just said, well, the organisation had, since I'd started the interview process, done my notes, it had changed. So, you know, what she'd learn is just thinking about organizations and you know picking up things so everyone's everyone's story is different that's what makes these cool these you know yeah interesting. well it's interesting on that because it wasn't clearly mistakes so i've been at pno for 10 years but when i first joined i definitely thought the culture wasn't right for me um it was too serious um, i mean it's, it's bathed in in has to be in governance because of the safety elements quite rightly so and i think the learning there was you can you can generate change if you put your mind to it uh, i mean that's not talking about something that's gone wrong is it but i did initially yeah. think hmm, not sure i'm going to be here for very long i'm not sure if it's the right culture for me i'm a bit too duracell bunny and it is is this right um or you know a bit tigger of the tigerish it was a bit quiet mm -hmm. it was a bit serious um but that you know not one to quit it 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 was okay so that that as i say that that didn't go you know it so changed, what changed it, yeah. so what changed was it you you adapting to them or do you think they adapted to you it was a bit of both it, i don't perhaps a bit of both but it wasn't really me I, I think you one thing you have to be in your career is authentic yes you have to know when to dial it up dial it up and dial it down there's no doubt about that but i think authenticity you'll be found out if you're trying to be something you're not. So I did sort of grit my teeth a bit and think, well, this is me. Um, I, what I did learn is you can't eat the elephant all at once. So mm -hmm. on certain things like cultural change, and where I was really trying to drive a certain program uh, on leadership behavior, um, and I, you know, even having gone through a pitch process and found the right program, I was still not getting complete buy-in, as in a big rollout program, I stepped, completely back from that and just thought right leave it Leslie and in passing I just suggested that the board maybe tested it see what we thought we hadn't done a lot of leadership development and that kicked the whole thing off that that became like a four year plus program of, of leadership development so that was just about a change thing I think you know when I was at the first the first job after M&S it was fascinating but I knew you know two years was enough um, you know because an entrepreneur somebody who, who really knew they needed HR but didn't really want it um, there was you could go so far and I, I did learn that that it wasn't necessarily the wrong decision because it taught me so much but you do have to sort of also judge you may get so far and that doesn't mean it's a failure so I think that's the other thing for particularly people coming through the profession don't always see things as failures see them as as what the learning is what you're taking yeah, from absolutely. it absolutely yeah absolutely you know, I think people learn as much from failure as they do from success, actually. You know, 
And again, going back to my sort of sporting career, I think, you know, the thing I learned early on was that thing about a coach. Always reflect. What would you do differently? How do you perform differently? Do you get up yeah. at a different time? Do you eat a different meal? Do you do a different session that day? Yeah. And actually, that just becomes part of the process, doesn't it? Part of how you, you adapt to a situation. Let's move on, uh, Leslie. So uh, one more question, and then we'll have a bit of a break. Um, and this is one about HR strategy and planning, really. So one of the things that I know, having worked with lots of um, people that perhaps have got their first HR director's job, is they struggle to know what goes in the strategic plan and what doesn't. So that trade-off, you know, we're going to focus on these three or four things and we're not going to do everything, you know, that bit about not trying to eat the elephant. So how do you as an HR director in a few different organisations decide, you know, this year or in the next 18 months or the next two years, we're going to do leadership development, we're going to put a new performance management system. But I tell you what, we're not going to do anything about reward and we're not going to do anything about... So how do you make decisions about what goes into the plan and what you leave out? Let me describe a tool that I developed um, for myself when I go into a new business because um, that helps me then set my stall out initially and then also you, you adapt each year. So... Um, I developed a document um, that I use every time I change jobs that takes you from attraction through to exit and every single element. I mean, this is nuts and bolts HR. Every single area of people is in this document. Uh, and I updated it when I went to p Ferries to include works councils, trade unions, CBAs, things that I'd never dealt with before. Uh, and then I, if I really avoid throwing myself into a job in the first week or month if I can possibly avoid it don't get me wrong there's always things you need to get dragged into but I make myself go around the whole business um, and within this document I use this document as my personal induction and I investigate what the customer thinks of these areas of HR and what the HR team or the people team think because the people team won't always see it as the customer sees it <laughs> so I'll then have a log against every area of HR as to it's almost like my personal audit and I will then go through that I'll look at the business plan and I'll decide um, against two areas I'll give it a critical factor um, and the two areas I look at is if I change that if I do something about that how does it drive the EBITDA and depending on what business the second uh, measurement is um, KPI whatever you have you want to term it is um, people retention depending on the level of turnover. In a restaurant business, that was an absolute yeah, 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 yeah. KPI because of the level of staff turnover and the cost of that is astronomical. And you've got to be able to quantify your decisions with cost and profit. So that's what's driven your decisions. So I would then give it all a, a, a factor, you know, for being critical, we've got to sort it because it will drive the bottom line. And if, if in the P&O phrase, people retention wasn't such a big issue. In fact, we probably needed a bit more on occasions to get fresh eyes, fresh thinking. Um, and then I would put that into a sort of a, a priority list and look at that against what is the business trying to deliver. Uh, and that would be my basis for writing my strategy. Um, and then that adapts. Um, I mean, that's a very early day. So that's an early initial yeah. approach, Kevin. But obviously then as you go through, you, you can see and, and use it almost as your temperature check. So what's changed from the initial plan? I mean, don't, I'm not looking at it 10 years on. The business is a completely different place. But it's a very good start point. Um, and then on an ongoing basis, it's, it's just back to that 
business savviness, isn't it? it? It's what is it that is going to turn the dial? What are, what are your customers saying? What do your board need? Or sometimes it's what do they not realise they need? So where do you have your own personal insight to influence uh, what the shape of that plan looks like where potentially um, potentially that people are missing a trick? Where do you, I like that bit there about what you perceive and perhaps they don't see themselves. You know, when you're sitting around a board table, I think that's one of the things HR often brings to the table is a perception of, you know, a bit more of a holistic view about the organisation and stuff. Um, how do you develop that? That's an interesting question. Where does that come from? Yeah, I, I sort of have a personal three eyes model, um, which is um, insight, intelligence and intuition. Um, so for me, insight is all about asking lots and lots of questions and never take the first answer. Always be curious, ask lots of questions. That's the insight. The intelligence part for me is all about how your, your personal ability to um, actually understand data. So you have to be able to look at the data and analyze it and quite quickly draw some conclusions from that data. So that would be my intelligence eye. And then the intuition, intuition eye is, um, is fairly obvious. Um, so always trust your instincts, but you have to listen to your instincts having got the first two firmly in place and then go quickly to decision. But if you can get your insight and your intelligence right, always trust your instinct. You know, it, it normally, it's always stood me in good stead. But when you're talking to people, you've got to be able to give the insight answers and the intelligent answers, either data, to demonstrate your credibility. People yeah, don't yeah. go for, oh, well, I think and I feel and all I just know. I mean, that doesn't no. work. No, and, and I'm with you. I think HR, the future of HR is all about data and more about data than, than before. And I think you're right about insight as well. But I am interested in the intuition thing. Because I think a lot of our board colleagues often haven't got that. They haven't got a feel. I think HR often brings that. You know, we look at the data, we look at the numbers, we understand the customer feedback. But what we can say is, I think there's something about culture here. I think there's something about capability of frontline managers. I think there's something. And, I, you know, and I don't know where we get that from. It's interesting because yeah. I think that's something that you most probably perfect through doing. Do you know what I mean? By just being in organizations. Yeah, it, and it comes through, doesn't it? The more you deal with the different environments, you know, and perhaps that is about don't be afraid to go and work in a different environment. The more you can yeah. learn, the, the more it helps your, your intuition. Um, I mean, my team know that my favorite, well, not my favorite, one of my expressions is I've got a scratch, and they will go, oh, God, Leslie's got a scratch, because my scratch is like, uh, something's not right here or this is going to go wrong guys we've got to get all over this or we've got to pick this up early now don't wait there's you know and it's just comes uh, comes with the job i guess yeah yeah but i think it's something again and i think it's things that are often not talked about but are clearly important is the blend of intuition and data it's always about the two it's not about one or the other yeah, I think my other bit to add to that is is how what percentage of your time you spend in listening mode and what percentage of your time you spend in transmit mode. And particularly when I look back, you you know, I can remember my MS days and you'd have like a lunch with executives and it'd be like, oh, my God, I've been invited to an executive lunch. And you go into the dining room in those days and, you know, somebody press a bell and somebody come in with tea and mm -hmm. coffee. I mean, life was different. Life was different. But that's the way it was. And nothing wrong with it at the time. Uh, 
but I can remember this um, nervousness and this desire to say something you know got to be heard can't be a mouse and there is something about that as you're developing that you have an opinion but at the right moment with the the right statement but I think as you go further along in your career that desire should diminish and actually um, you often find people are in transmit mode so you know far, far too frequently than in listening mode um you know i often say you know the ratio between ears and mouth uh, are there for a reason so i think the ability to listen is is also really critically important and, and also listen to what people are not saying let the pause yeah, happen yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway interesting okay. stuff interesting stuff right we're going to take a break there so we'll be back in about a minute and a half's time and in the second half of the podcast i'm going to Talk to Leslie a bit about what HR needs to do differently, advice you give to a young person joining the career. And we'll talk a little bit about what Leslie, uh, what she's passionate about outside of work. So join us back for the second part of this podcast with Leslie Cole. As the world comes to terms with the COVID-19 crisis, Circal want to help HR leaders look to the future. Will the crisis shift the world of work for good? What will this look like? And how should HR leaders help prepare their business? These are the questions that Kevin Green and the resident Circle experts will consider as part of the Shifting World of Work content series. Visit circal.co.uk to find out how you can get free access to Circal's up-to-the-minute news, research and opinion for you and your team today. second part of HR Futures podcast. With me today is uh, Leslie Cotton, the Divisional People Director at P&O Ferries. In the first half of the podcast, we talked a lot about her career, retail, uh, into gyms, into private equity, through restaurant businesses to P&O, and some really good insights, I think, about particularly the thing about balancing um, data and intuition and being, you know, listening to your inner voice and and also I like that bit that we had just before the break about you know making sure that you have good listening skills and leave some pauses I think that's hugely important so uh, welcome back to the second part of the podcast I've got two questions one is do you think we get the right people in HR do we do we hire the brightest and the best or do they go into finance or sales or operations it's one question and secondly do you think we really develop people the right way because again, I go back to my CIPD, and I, I know it's changed a lot since when I did mine in the 80s, but you know, I still think we teach people disciplines. We teach them a bit about ER and training and development and a bit about reward. And a, you know, we might do a little bit of economics, but we won't really teach them the fundamentals of business strategy and customer service. And so for me, I've got two questions for that. Do we hire the right people in HR and do we develop them in the right way? Um, I think we do hire the right people in HR. I think we've got a lot of talent in the profession. Um, uh, I think we probably should market the jobs quite differently, though. I think there's more that we can do because I think, again, it's back to this business acumen point. Um, And please don't think while I keep stressing this that I lose sight. You know, people are at my heart. Otherwise, I would have stayed on the commercial route. But um, I think it could be marketed very differently. From that perspective but i still think we've got a lot of talent in hr i but back to your combined question which was about developing them 
I don't think that that's where we need to ensure um, that we have our full in, you know, attention. I mean, like you, I, I did my CIPD. Um, I didn't do it when I was at Marks and Spencer's. That was quite, at the time, quite sort of insular. You had a, an amazing m yeah. training. You didn't really look outside. Um, and then when I, um, I went to, uh, on from there, I decided, uh, probably perhaps because I didn't go to university, I almost wanted to prove it to myself. And if I was doing it, I was going to get to fellow, and which, which I did. Um, and I can remember because we, when I was at um, Paramount Restaurants, just a slight sort of tangent story, I'll do a Ronnie Corbett for you. Um, we were walking the three, we, one of our ambitions as a board of directors was going to walk the three peaks. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can remember the CEO saying to me, oh, you hill walking at the weekends then, Leslie. I said, no, I'm not. I'm writing my 10,000 word dissertation because I can't fit it in. Mm-hmm. So I'm not hill walking at the weekends. But um, anyway, so that was another story, walking three peaks, which was a, a career highlight. I should have said that. Gosh, bonding oh, okay. as a team, walking the three peaks. That was amazing. Gosh, fancy forgetting that. Um, so, yes. Uh, so, but, but I think your point now is, yeah, clearly there is a measurement to come in or a bit of a... I guess, a, a criteria around CIPD to get people into the profession. Um, you have to, uh, there's, there's no negativity about the CIPD, but you have to be able to balance that in your own personal development and how we bring people through the profession with understanding the, the business. Uh, and of course, you have to be able to be experts around reward. I mean, I love you know, and that was where MS was brilliant. You know, the grounding. So I, you know, whether I'm talking about a board retention package, a bonus scheme, um, a people development program, a recruitment strategy. You know, MS gave me so much, and then I developed myself as I went through. So I've, you've got to have that, otherwise you lose all credibility of your specialism. But you have to be able to use that in different ways, depending on the type of business, and you have to really think about that, not just churn out a standard part of, a, yeah, of an yeah, HR yeah. toolkit and HR toolkits are critical but you have to be able to adapt them okay let's um let's change the subject so a young person comes to you you know someone introduces you they're thinking about a, 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 you know they're thinking about a job in HR perhaps they've been offered one they're not sure whether they want to go into HR or into a different discipline what would you be saying to them about you know what's great about our profession and some of the challenges some of the difficulties you know because it like in most jobs it, it you know there are things that are great and things that aren't yeah it's funny isn't it because um, there's a number of people um you know that you work with who are clearly not not in hr who say oh god i can never do i can never be in hr how do you do that because people are unpredictable um uh so that's part of the attraction you know, resilience, agility, you know, the, the no, no one day is the same. Always be prepared to be surprised. You know, there are so many reasons to be in HR. You also need huge amounts of patience. Um, you, and as I say, you do need that resilience area. You need to also see that, you know, there is a different way to lead. So often you might not be at the forefront at times. It depends on the situation. That your ability to influence and drive a decision in a collaborative way if you pull those skills out of your toolkit and you can develop those skills um are brilliant i I mean i think you get the best of all of it why wouldn't i say that as an hr professional Mm. um because you've got the people bit you know no business can be successful without the right people so you've got all of that accountability um so you have to be prepared to take all that on um and of course i would say it's the best job on the board 
Yeah, you're not yes so sure, no. are you? Look at your face. <laughs> no, I think I'll tell you why. Because I always, because I, I ran my own business for quite a few years. And then when I left Royal Mail, I went and did a chief exec's job. And only a small organisation, professional body. But I quite like leading organisations. I quite, and one of the things I think that, one of, that surprises me, how few HR people end up being chief execs. And I don't know why. Got yeah, any ideas really or yeah, I think that's a key question and it shouldn't be the case. And actually, I've had a number of people say to me why, you know, when I've been talking to some of my colleagues around in the search world, why aren't you doing the, you know, the the, the ops or the, you know, the MD, why aren't you doing that? You could do that. And I may, maybe there's an element of doubt. Maybe there is an element of doubt in myself. And people said, oh, don't be silly. Why don't you give it a go? I, I guess for me, I don't want to move away from the heartland of people but to be fair all leaders have got to be good at people it's not just hr so you know yeah. I, I think your, your point's really well made though i mean and something that i where i'm not at my best is if i haven't got the right um relationship with the chief executive so whoever that may be to be one you know they've normally got the cfo on one side and the people director on the other if i can't get that and that trusted partner that internal coach um that you know the person that's in their ear about what needs to be done etc so for me, that's critical. So you have a, a very strong part within that leadership team and you have a, a, an ability to influence. Um, but yeah, why is it that more people don't get themselves all the way to CEO? Because we should. We should. And there's no reason why we shouldn't. There's no reason why we shouldn't do that. Oh gosh, now you're giving me an ambition target now, Kevin. Well, why not? Why not? Um, but again, I, I, it's very rare. I did something for people management and they phoned me up and they said look we're talking about why HR directors don't become chief execs and we've only found you and one other person I'm going really bizarre you know but anyhow let's cut let's let's move on from that I I suppose I really want to finish up Leslie by talking a bit about you um and what you do outside of work you know what your passion is it sport travel literature theatre because again one of the things I'm always interested in is you know, people that have got big jobs, you know, we have to balance these with, you know, trying to find other things that are passionate in our lives as well, so that we end up with, you know, a life that isn't completely out of sync. Otherwise, we don't do anything other than work. So tell us a bit about, you know, the things that you love outside of work. Yeah, and, and it's it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I don't think um, we're very good uh, at getting the balance right all of the time um but i guess that also comes with the recognition that sort of a conscientiousness around what you need to deliver when you've got you're, you're paid a salary to deliver and and you want to do the very best that you can but it is really important to keep in mind the other passions in your life as you rightly say kevin so family would come number one um you know i i'm so fortunate that i've still got my parents um at my grand old age even though i started very young um so yeah i'm very very lucky that i've got my parents and you can never um uh, you know sort of take bring that time back again um i've got you know great relationships with my husband's family um so you know i'm, I'm very fortunate i've got fabulous nieces um so family means uh, an awful lot to me as as do my friendships i mentioned earlier some great friends through mns but also you know friends from school friends from where I've lived, um, you know, in, in the village that I'm in now. So that that means so much to me. And then on top of that, definitely travel. I've got a bit of a thing about nice restaurants, um, you know, 
hopefully soon we can get ourselves into London again. So, you know, I've got a real interest in, in food gyms. So, I mean, when I joined Pian at uh, Paramount, uh, beg your pardon, Paramount, I was my interest in food. Yeah, when yeah, I joined yeah. Home Place Health Clubs, um, I thought, wow, this is the job for me. I'm going to be in gyms. This is amazing. So that passion about the, the product. So, yes, keep trying to do something around fitness. And that just helps your head. You know, I've you know, got a bit of a back problem at the moment. But going for a run, it's important. Taking your head somewhere else, giving yourself some space. So exercise, you know, trying to keep your own fitness and health. Travel, as I said, uh, trying some new restaurants. And I love cooking, but um, and when I give myself time, I can cook. I just, to be honest, that's one thing I don't make time for. And reading books. I, I don't actually read a great deal of business books, to be honest. Um, I, I know I've got yours to read, Kevin. I can see you're grinning at me now. Um, I'll yeah. pay you later for the fact I've mentioned your book. Oh, you can pay me later, I should say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just switching off a beautiful beach um, and switching off with a, a, a good book is a form of relaxation. So and I do think we need to unwind in these jobs. Yeah, you do, we do. What type of books do you read then? Oh, I could read anything from, you know, Ken Follett or, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, anything from a, um, a some type of... Um, uh, thriller, any sort sort of type of thriller, through to um, you know Penny Vincenzi, which is a uh, family sagas. So oh, okay. I read anything in, in between, really. Um, okay. So a whole variety, but yeah, thrillers, something that takes me somewhere else. Yeah, I tell you what, I think I've taken from that bit about your parent. It was predominantly about people, which is interesting, isn't it? Family. Oh. Uh, Very insightful, so. there, Kevin. Well, I, th I think it was quite interesting because, you know, we spend a lot of time at work with people, don't we? Talking, listening, trying to understand. And and I, and I think, you know, it, it's no surprise that you spend a bit of time doing that, eating out, travelling, being with families, all about, again, a lot of the same things, really. Uh, but hopefully with people you love rather than people you just have to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I so, love the people I work with as well. Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, that brings us to the end. Thank you, Leslie. I think it's been a really good podcast. I think there's been lots of insights, um, lots of stories, lots of things that I think people um, will relate to. And I'm sure you'll get some emails and you'll get some response when we, we put this out in, a, in the next couple of weeks. So thank you for spending the time. Thank you for participating. It's been really interesting. Thanks, Kevin. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much good. for inviting me.